It is our uh, pleasure to have Mike Hall uh, today share with us. And so, Mike, you, you started this whole thing. Um, so how fitting for you to, to share with us about marriage. And so I just want to say to you, um, thank you as well. And thank you for your labor in Tuscaloosa, um, the way that you have poured your life out. Um, many of the buildings we were able to build upon gospel-wise um, was because God used you to till the soil in many ways. And so I counted a joy to be partners with you in the gospel, brother. Amen. And we counted a joy to be possible. Same, Same here. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you, Troy. Michael. <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be here with you. What a, what a real privilege for us to be able to, to be here and share with you this morning, and uh, especially be here on a day like today uh, to celebrate uh, together uh, these uh, two gifts from God that uh, he has given to our family. Uh, you know, Troy mentioned earlier, back uh, end of last year, I made a transition from full-time pastoral ministry. Been doing that for about 44 years. And we sensed that it was time for God to transition us to a new season. Uh, I refer to that new season uh, in a way that someone uh, said this to me, that this was going to be my encore years. So that's what it is. It's an encore instead of a retirement and we have an opportunity to be able to, to minister and to share the, the gospel with others like you here today. And I want to thank Troy especially for the privilege of coming and being here this morning. I, I remember where, um, I'm trying to remember, what, when, when did you guys first show up here in Tuscaloosa? 09, 2009, yeah. And I remember the opportunity to get to meet Troy and hear about his, what God had, had given him a vision and birthed in him. Uh, Safe Haven Church and be able to see that happen and see what's going on and how that has taken place. So uh, it is really, I I can't tell you what an honor and privilege it is to to be here with you this morning, but I am going to have to remove this baby bottle out of the way, all right? That's just getting a little bit distracting there in that way. Uh, Though I've seen my share of those over the years. If you don't know about us, we, uh, my wife and I, uh, Carol, uh, we uh, met here when we were in college at the University of Alabama many years ago. Uh, we have six children who are adults. They're all married, so I say we have 12 children. And more importantly, those of you that are in this season of your life as grandparents, we have 15 grandchildren, all right? And that's the real blessing of life. And as you've heard it said before, and I'll just reiterate it and let it be known, uh, that grandchildren are truly the blessing for not taking your kids out when you have them under your household, all right? <clears throat> so they really are. Uh, and being part of this series is really uh, an encouragement and, to me and an opportunity to share with you. I did notice that Troy is very strategic, though, in how he planned who was going to be speaking when. So he starts off with Dolan Davis, who, by the way, is one of my very best friends in all the world, Dolan Davis. He starts off with Dolan Davis, way up here, and then he's going to finish with Glenn Eubanks, way up here. So you guys get the middle right here with me today, all right? He starts strong, finish strong, and then here I am this morning. Let me tell you something. June 21st, 1980, 3 p.m. In a room like this, I gathered with a few hundred people, and more importantly, with this beautiful lady sitting over here, and we went through a wedding ceremony. We exchanged vows. 
By the way, I misspoke or spoke in a way in my vows that she got so tickled, she almost, she was laughing so hard her veil almost came off. In fact, the pastor didn't know what to do. She, you know, he got, she, he didn't know I stop or I keep going or whatever. We finished that ceremony and began a journey that has been going on now for almost 43 years. It's a journey of marriage. And by the way, it's a journey that we're still on. Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, we're on a journey in our faith and our relationship with God, and none of us have arrived yet. And we have arrived because the day of Jesus hasn't come when we're in his presence. And the same thing's true in marriage. Whether you just getting started or you've been down the road some years, maybe some of you even further than we have, the reality is you have not arrived yet. You are still in the process of becoming and being the couple that God has made you to be. So as I speak to you this morning, I want you to understand, I am a fellow journeyer. I am going down the road with you. Now, one of the things, too, I've got to keep in mind here is, is you know me, maybe not personally, but you know me through some of my children. I have the privilege, you know, four of our children are here at Day, uh, Day Spring. Four of our children are here at Safe Haven and, and their children. And so when I say things and when you hear me share here this morning, I know I'll get called out by them if it isn't in line, right? And you will know that as well. So we're on this journey together. At the start of my pastoral ministry, I made a commitment that I would not perform a wedding ceremony unless the couple would agree to go through premarital counseling. Now, the reason I did that is not because I knew all there was to know about marriage. I was a young guy in ministry, and I was just young in marriage as well. But I did know that God had the answers for us in marriage. And God had the directions for us. And what I wanted to do was be proactive instead of reactive. I wanted to help share with couples and help them get some uh, things that would, uh, uh, some tools maybe in their chest, tool chest, that would help them move through marriage in a way that it would go the distance. Part of those premarital sessions, I would always ask this question right up front. I'd ask them and I'd say, hey, how long do you guys plan to be married? And I always get a really quizzical look from each one of them. In fact, some of them were thinking, this is a trick question, right? And you know what I would answer that everyone would give? We're going to be married for a lifetime. Nobody ever said, oh, if I can get five or ten, maybe 15 years out of this thing, we'll call it a win. Nobody ever said that. They always said if we go for the lifetime. But you know the reality is, not every marriage does go the distance, does it? Reality is that doesn't always happen. And what I wanted them to understand is that if they were going to go have a marriage that goes the distance, that lasts a lifetime, then they were going to have to do some things. They were going to have to take some steps. In fact, I would always follow up with that when they would answer, well, we want to be married for a lifetime. I said, so so how's that going to happen? How's that going to take place? Because the reality is When you're in that getting ready to be married stage and you're all so in love and 
you know, everything is so wonderful and so great and, and, and nothing could ever go wrong. And, and you feel like, oh, this is going to be just this way. We're going to feel this way forever until about three months after marriage. And you go, whoa, wait a minute, what happened? Because, see, if you don't do some certain things and you don't put some things into place, I don't care what your desire is, it's not going to take place. That's why it's so important for us to spend time like you are doing over these next, uh, these three weeks of talking about and looking about the relational components, the relational principles that God gives us in his word that make those last. And that's what I want to try to do with you this morning. I want to share with you some things that I hope can help you in going the distance and having a marriage that lasts a lifetime. And these principles that we're going to look at, by the way, though, they're going to be specific in the, con- in the context of marriage, are very applicable in whatever type of relationship you find yourself. Because God has established relationships in our lives, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in family, whether it's friendships, whatever those are, God has put those relationships in place. And the principles we will look at this morning, I believe, are very applicable to each and every relationship you find yourself in. Now, last week, Dolan Davis did a masterful job of teaching from Genesis 2. And I'd like to go back to those verses for just a few minutes uh, and help us begin to build off of that and what I want to talk with you about this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Genesis chapter 2 or your copy of the Scriptures, whatever you use. But also go ahead and find Mark chapter 10 in the New Testament because we're, we're going to move from Genesis 2 to Mark 10 in just a few minutes. Now when Dolan spoke last week, he He did a great job of helping you understand what it means to hold fast in the marriage relationship. And I always appreciate Dolan's teaching. Uh, Like I said, we've been friends for for many, many, many years. In 1993, we met, and the way we met was that he was the chair of a pastor search team uh, for here in Valley View and Tuscaloosa, and we began to meet. We were living in Texas at that time, talking and so forth. Out of that birth, a relationship and, and a friendship that has been going on ever since. And I'm so grateful for Dolan and Vicki and how they have modeled for us about marriage in our own life. And he did a wonderful job of helping us understand last week what it means to hold fast. Look at verse 23 of Genesis 2. He said, Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife. And you, had a, you got a great uh, understanding of what that means from Dolan last week. But I want you to notice what follows that. And it says, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want to focus just a few minutes on that statement there where God says, and they shall become one flesh. The Bible says that the result of marriage is that a man and a woman in marriage become one flesh. There's a oneness that develops there. Now, by the way, that's more than just a sexual, intimate 
relationship. That oneness goes deeper than that. In fact, as I understand it, I believe that the sexual aspect of marriage is an expression of the oneness that always exists. One of the challenges we have in our society today is people are looking for intimacy. They are looking for oneness with another person. And they think that sex is going to create that. And so they get involved in a lot of sexual encounters with different people trying to develop that oneness, trying to fulfill that intimacy that they're looking for, but it never happens. That's why they continue to have different sexual encounters with different people because they are missing the point. Sex was not about creating intimacy. Sex expresses intimacy. And the oneness that he speaks of here goes deeper than the sexual aspect of marriage. In fact, Here's how I would define oneness in covenant marriage. It is a deep level of intimacy and connection that a couple has with God and each other. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There is, first of all, I believe, a shared commitment to Jesus. When I do premarital counseling, I always pull out this little diagram. It's a little triangle. And in that triangle, I use that to help us under, help those couples understand what I'm talking about when I talk about this commitment to Jesus. And in the bottom of the triangle, there is each corner represents the husband and the wife. The top of the triangle there is God. And I talk about how as you grow in your personal relationship with God, as you grow closer to God and grow deeper in your commitment to God, you will also notice that you grow closer to one another. And folks, that isn't just a cute little diagram. That's reality. Because if you want to have a oneness with your spouse, if you want to have a oneness with another person, you need to grow in your own personal relationship with God. And as you grow closer to God, as you develop that relationship with Him, you're going to find that oneness develops in your marriage as well. There's also a shared commitment to each other. In the Bible, God always presents marriage in the context of a covenant. And Dolan spoke to you about that last week. It speaks to the context of a covenant, not a contract. There's a big difference between those. If I have a contract with you, if I have a contractual agreement with you, and if we think of this in terms of marriage, it, it becomes really difficult. For example, if I have a contract with you, Troy, and Troy, you say you're going to do A, B, and C, And I say, well, if you do A, B, and C, then I'll do uh, D, E, and F. But if you don't do A, B, and C, then I don't have to do D, E, and F. We're we're done. Vice, same thing, true each way. You see, there's a consumer-type aspect to that with a contractual agreement. But in the Bible, it doesn't present marriage that way. And unfortunately, that's sometimes the way we see marriage. We go, well, if, if my spouse will do A, B, and C, then I'll do D, E, and F. And if they don't, then, hey, I'm done. Vice versa. But in the Bible, the Bible presents marriage as a covenant. And there's a big difference. Because in a covenant, there is a commitment to that person, period. Regardless of what they do or they don't do. The same way that God develops His covenant with us. We are bound together. We are bound together through the love that God has placed in us for each other. And by the way, God's love is that way for me and you. He commits to love us, period. He doesn't say, I'm going to love you if you do A, B, and C. He says, I choose to love you, period. And the same thing is true with us in marriage. We make a commitment to our spouse. I'm going to love you regardless. 
Because the reality is that in marriage, over the years, and as you go through, and we'll come to this, back to this in a few moments, there are going to be things that happen in times where you don't feel like you're going to love your spouse. There are going to be times where that feeling you had when you first met, that feeling you had as you went through your engagement period, that feeling you had on your wedding day, that feeling's not going to be there. And if you are entered into marriage in a contractual consumer agreement, when that feeling disappears, you're going to say, hey, I'm done. I'm finished. Why keep going? But if you see your marriage as a covenant established by God, as a choice that you've made to love that person, even when sometimes they may not be very lovable, by the way, when you may not be very lovable, then you're going to have a basis to move forward in that marriage. John Piper said this, he said, the ultimate meaning of marriage is the representation of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church. And there's a third aspect of this one, just to point out real quickly, shared purpose and mission. Uh, shared pur- and what I mean by that, it's more than just having common goals together, my career, our parenting, uh, maybe looking forward to retirement and how we're going to plan for that, and all of those things are important. But when I talk about share, shared purpose and mission, I'm talking about the purpose that God has made you for as individuals and as a couple. I'm talking about having a gospel-centered impact in your marriage. The, having an influence for the kingdom of God and the things of God. You see, whether we realize it or not, our marriages are a representation of the gospel to the world in which we live. And when I have a shared common and purpose as a couple, that oneness there, that I'm gonna, we're going to let our marriage become the gospel presentation to the world that God has intended for it to be, then we're going to get involved in the mission that God has given to each and every one of us as followers of Jesus. In John 20, 21, Jesus said this, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. God has handed off the mission of getting the gospel to every man, woman, and child to each and every one one of us as a follower of Jesus. And when we incorporate that into our marriage, when we incorporate that into our family, into our life, then we have a oneness that focuses in upon the purposes of God. And what that has helped me understand, I hope it does you this morning, is that marriage, in fact, any relationship, begins and ends with God. It begins and ends with Him. Because it is all about Him. It just doesn't include God. It has to be centered upon and built on God and His purposes, His plans, His desires for me and you. Now, one of the things we need to realize is, because I just presented to you, I think, is a beautiful picture of what God has for marriage to be, the oneness that comes from that. What we need to understand is we have an enemy who does not want to see God's desire carried out. In fact, he will leverage any and everything he can to try to destroy, try to distort what God is wanting to do in and through his people. 
And if we're going to be those that move past that, if we're going to be those that, as I shared earlier, are working towards having a marriage that goes the distance, then we not only need to understand that we have an enemy who will resort to any and everything, but we also need to understand about ourselves and how he can use that to create and destroy God's desire and God's design for us in marriage. And this was where I come back. I want to come to Mark chapter 10 this morning. So if you'll take your copy of the scriptures and turn there to Mark chapter 10. I want to spend a few moments talking with you about these verses. Now we're going to discover that Jesus here is going to have an interaction with some of the religious leaders, the elite of that day. And if you've read through the Gospels and you've studied the life of Jesus, you know this was not uncommon for him. In fact, this was something that seemed to always occur, that Jesus, he would have these interactions with these religious leaders, those that were considered the elite of that day, in a way that always didn't end well for them. And we'll find that to be the same here today. Look in verse Verse 1, it said, and he left there, Mark chapter 10, he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Don't you love that? Jesus always paused, spent time with people to teach them the truth about God. And by the way, isn't that what we're going to be about? To be those that pause and interact with others to help them understand the truth about God. Verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, oh, they just gave it away. See, what they were doing, they weren't trying to learn about God. They weren't trying to understand more about who he was and his desires for them. In fact, as the religious elite, you know what? They thought they already had all that figured out. They had all the answers. So they weren't interested in learning more about God. They came to test Jesus. They came to trap him. They wanted to trap him with his own words. They wanted to discredit him before the people. And the reason for that is they were feeling a personal threat from him in regards to their own sense of position and power in the religious establishment of that day. And when you get fearful of having your position or your power uh, challenge, then you will resort to doing things that aren't very godly. And that's what happened right here. You see, they were afraid. They were afraid of Jesus, so they didn't want to admit it. Because they had never, like the other people, they they'd never heard anyone teach like him before. They had never seen anyone that had the truth of God like he had. And they were concerned that they were going to lose the following of the people of that day and so they were trying to do something to, to catch him. They were getting desperate. And so here's how they decided to do it on this occasion. They decided to bring up the matter of divorce because divorce then, like now, was a very divisive topic. By the way, it's not the smartest thing in the world to try to ever get into a theological argument with Jesus. <laughs> It never ends well for you. And these guys were obviously not the sharpest knife in the drawer because they tried to do that. Look what it goes on in the scripture. It says, so they came in order to just test him and they asked, is it lawful 
for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, well, what did Moses command you? Jesus always usually answers a question with a question, doesn't he? Because he wants us to think about what we've really asked. He said, what did Moses command? Verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And you know, they were correct in what they said. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, we read there where, where, God, where Moses wrote, and the, and the law of Moses says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he can send her away. So they answered correctly. Because, but here's the challenge. You see, the challenge is, what does that word indecent mean? And there was a lot of debate among the rabbis of that day about that. There were basically two schools of thought concerning that, two schools of thought about divorce in Jesus' day, and they were, they were pretty much promoted by two well-known rabbis of that time, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shema. Now, Rabbi Shema was a more conservative individual. He would have been the the religious uh, correspondence for Fox News, all right? He was the guy that would belong to Safe Haven, all right? He was on the more conservative end, and he said that the word indecent referred to being sexually unfaithful, and it was kind of a strict interpretation. But Rabbi Halal was more of a liberal view. He was more of a progressive. He would be the guy that you would see on CNN. He drove an electric car. He wore Birkenstock sandals, all right? He might have even been from California. I don't know. But his view was the most predominant view of that day. And here's what his view was. His view was that you could divorce your wife, that indecent meant if she displeased you for any reason. If she was a indecent cook to send her on her way for some of us if she didn't cook at all we could send her on her way I heard a guy tell me one time he said my wife cleans our oven with in dust <laughs> well that sounded funny when I wrote it but anyway <clears throat> but he said you could, you could divorce her if she had indecent bad morning breath I mean, that's how loose that was translated by many. And that was the view of those that were bringing this question to him. But look at verse 5. How did Jesus respond to that? He said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. He said, this was not the way it was from the beginning. In fact, he goes on, verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He, he basically quotes the verses we just read a moment ago. He said, in the beginning, that's not the way it was. That's not what was God's ideal. That was not God's design. But out of concession, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses gave this to protect the innocent that might, innocent ones that could have been affected by that. But he said, that wasn't really God's desire. That wasn't God's heart. God's heart was for a marriage between a man and a woman to go the distance, to last. Because that most accurately reflects the gospel. 
See, the problem is we all have this sin nature that gets in the way. We all have this within us that wants what it wants, when it wants it, the way it wants it, regardless of what it does to anyone else. And because of the hardness of heart, Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, this concession was made. I hope you picked it up. He didn't say it was because of the, you were felt a sense of incompatibility with your spouse, that you were drifting out of love or going in different directions or the stress of your professions or careers or you felt like you married the wrong person or the passion had gone. That's not what he said, is it? He said, what, well, because of what? The hardness of your heart. And that, he said, can lead to death in marriage. So what I want to do for the next few moments, if I can, is I want to talk with you about that. Because Jesus says that the greatest danger to the oneness in marriage, to the greatest danger of any relationship, is a hard heart. And what is a hard heart? When you read through the scriptures, you see that mentioned and talked about how the nation of Israel had a hard heart towards God or their hearts would be hardened. You see different individuals whose hearts are hardened. I would say this, that a hard heart is that which becomes insensitive to God and in the context of marriage becomes insensitive to your spouse. A hard heart develops when we fall into habits of disobedience. When we began to disobey God and we began to move away from those things that we know that God has for us to do and we do those consistently or or in a repetition in a way that our hearts begin to grow calloused and insensitive to God, but that also means that we grow indifferent to others as well. Those bad habits begin to fill up our lives. Hebrews 3.14 says this, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, listen, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews tells us that we need to be aware that any and every one of us can fall captive to a hard heart. That it is something that any of us, that can develop within any one of us. In fact, we need others to help us so that we don't fall captive to that. You know, I love sports. I don't know about you, but I love sports. I um, enjoy uh, watching all different sports. I, I, I'm a graduate of the University of Alabama, so and I'm an alum, and so I'm a big uh, Bama fan, a Tide fan. I love watch college football. I love watching college basketball. I love watch college baseball. Uh, I've learned to love watching college softball, and and, and all, I love watching all types of college sports except soccer. But the rest of those I love a lot. You know, one of the things I've discovered about. Uh, in sports, if, if you're going to be a good athlete, if you're going to be a good team player, there's something you have to do called practice. You ever notice that? Every team sport, even in an individual sport, if you're going to be good at something, you've got to practice. And practice is designed to correct bad habits and establish good habits. 
It's designed to allow an athlete to succeed, and, and it's designed to help a team be successful. In fact, the more positive reps you have, then the better you're going to play the game. That's why so much time is spent in practice. Well, I want us to take a few moments, if I can now, based on what all we've talked about. And I want to talk to you about uh, maybe how to develop some healthy reps in marriage. Maybe some of these will reveal some bad habits in our lives. But I also hope they'll put in place some good habits that you can replace those with. Okay? And, and I want to just give you five of these real quickly and, um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Okay? First of all, here's some practical things, some, some healthy reps. Focus on what matters. Release the rest. Focus on what matters and release the rest. Don't allow the small things to become big. You know, one of the things I've discovered and we've discovered in our 40, almost 43 years of marriage is the little things that add up to large things. Those little things cause us to get insensitive and calloused. In the Song of Solomon, which describes the intimate love relationship between a husband and a wife, in chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Do you know what foxes do when they get in a vineyard? They dig. And they dig at the root of the vine. And they get down to the roots of the vine and they destroy the roots. And what happens is then the vine withers and there's no more fruit. A study of breakdown, one study of the breakdown of marriage Pointed out, it's not the big ticket items that cause the problems. Abuse, addiction, adultery. Oftentimes, it's the simple things that build up over time that create a fractured marriage. It's those things, those little things that can build a wall between us. It's the little things like lack of appreciation. Where we don't say thank you. Or let our spouse know that we do appreciate what they're doing. It's those little things like those verbal jabs that we throw at each other. Maybe it's the tone we use when we speak to one another. It could be the little things like arriving late when you said you'd be there on time. It could be the little things like not responding through the phone call or returning the text. It, it could be a little thing of like the disappointment that you brought because you forgot maybe a special time. It could be a little thing just like that shows no big thing to me. It just a little thing about what I used to get so upset about. I was convinced that my wife and all the girls, and I have four daughters, two sons, the four, I was convinced that all the girls in my family were missing the gene that you have that tells you to close a drawer when you pull it out. <laughs> Some of you have that in your family, don't you? I mean, it was like they pulled the drawer out. Like, it used to drive me nuts. Open the drawer of a cabinet, a uh, door of a cabinet. Drive me nuts. I'd walk in, the drawers were open, the door. I would just go, this is a hunter. I'd get all worked up. I'd get so, so upset. and You know, I'd want to slam. The... No, I didn't slam. I gently closed the door. <laughs> the drawer. 
You know, one day God just spoke to me and he said, Mike, how long does it take you to close that drawer? How long does it take you to close that door? And you're getting all upset about something that doesn't really matter. But you know, that's what happens. We build this wall. And guess what? That wall gets there and we can't get through it. It gets tarred. And over time, if those small things add up, not only is that wall built, but it gets mortared. And it gets mortared with some really strong stuff that's hard to tear down. So I say, focus on what matters. Release the rest. I mean, really, in the long run, a lot of it, You won't even remember 10 years from now. Number two, be willing to give and receive forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, the reality is that if in marriage there is going to be a potential for conflict. You put two imperfect people together in the closest relationship on earth and there is going to be conflicts that occurs. Because we're sinners. We have a nature about us which is that way. The question is not are you going to have conflict. The question is how are you going to resolve it. And some of you, and some of you maybe that are just recently married, and and I've heard others say, well, we've been married for 20 years and we've never had a fight. (laughs) Liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) All you've done is redefine what a fight is, all right? You have disagreements, but you don't have fights, yeah. You know, conflict is going to happen in marriage. And the question is, as I said a moment ago, not is is there going to be conflict, but how are you going to resolve it? And, And there's a lot of things that would be involved in this, but I just want to point out one thing for you. Without forgiveness, that conflict will never be resolved. And by the way, forgiveness is not dismissing a hurt or a pain or, or saying something that, that was wrong is not wrong. That's not what forgiveness is. In fact, what forgiveness does, it brings to the forefront the pain and the hurt and the wrong. Because what it does, it causes us to have to deal with it. And when forgiveness takes place, we are unlocking the emotional prison that we have put ourselves in. What forgiveness is the key that lets us out of that jail. And when we give it and we receive it, it allows us to be able, it frees us up to do better. In fact, in many ways, what forgiveness does, listen to this, forgiveness releases the love that we have for another person and allows us to give it to them and allows us to receive it from them. You know, it's, it's really simple. It's just saying things like, I'm sorry. Those three little words, I am sorry. Or please forgive me. Or I love you. Without it, there's going to be resentment that develops and bitterness will come from that and ultimately, the Bible tells us, death occurs. I've got to hurry on. Focus on the needs of my spouse or others instead of me. In in Philippians chapter 2, which talks about our Savior and and, and how He gives us the example of Jesus, it says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Folks, who you focus on is become the focus of you. If you're focusing on you, then you are going to be the focus. If you're focusing on your spouse or the other person, they're going to become the focus. 
The selfishness that we have within us wants to pull ourselves to us, but if we're going to allow the Spirit of God to do the work in us that only He can do, then we will then begin to focus on the other and want to serve them. You know, one of the things that we learned a long time ago, and we went to uh, read a book and went to a conference by Gary Chapman. Gary Chapman, I'm talking about the writer, author, not the singer, but Gary Chapman was a guy that wrote a book called The Love Languages. Probably some of you, five love languages, some of you have heard, read that. If you haven't, I suggest you do. It can be very insightful for you. And he talked about the five love languages that we all generally have. He talked about words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, physical affection, acts of service. And one of those speaks louder to us than others. And one of the things I had to learn as a, as a husband, what my wife's love like, you'd have to be a student of your spouse. And one of the things I discovered about her is that one of her love languages is, is acts of service. That if I do things for her, especially if I do them unasked, <laughs> it says I love you to her in a really big way. You know, we, we, we have six children. Our house was chaotic, you know, when they were young. We had them about every two, two and a half years. So just, you do the math, you figure it out, you know. Not only did we have a lot of preschoolers at the same time, here's even something else. We had a lot of teenagers at the same time. By the way, we survived. It, it can happen, okay? That's where all this, this white hair comes from, all right? But here's the deal. I learned one time that, that my wife... If, if I would come home in the evenings and she'd been putting the kids to bed and getting them baths and all of that and cooking and stuff, I could come in and look at that kitchen and it pots and pans everywhere, dishes everywhere, and I'd go, good grief, why isn't this place cleaned up? Or I could get in there and clean the kitchen, load the dishwasher, get everything. And when she comes back, she looks at that, Woo! Big husband points right there, fellas, telling you, all right? Can pay off. I won't go any further than that. All right. Here's the next one. Ask questions and listen to responses. James 2 says we ought to be slow to speak, quick to listen. You know, one of the challenges I think all of us have is we always assume we know what our our spouse's intent. And oftentimes what happens is we answer them before they're finishing the conversation with us. I'm a fixer. I mean, that's the way I'm made. I'm a pastor. I, 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 I help people, and I've been doing that for years. And the problem is that bleeds over into my marriage. And my wife will come to me, and she'll share with me something that's going on in her life or something in, in her context, and she's telling me about the details of it. And, and, and I'm sitting there, and I'm already way ahead of her. I've got it figured out. I've got the answer to her problem. I've got the solution for her. And before she finishes her sentence, I jump in and give her the solution, tell her what the answer is, fix her, she can go on her way and be happy forever, right? She gives me a look to act like, if you say one more word, I'm going to kill you. She doesn't want to hear what I have to say. You know what she wants me to do? She wants me to hear what she has to say. She wants me to share in the struggles she has, maybe even share in the blessings there. And here's the last one. Refuse to give up. Refuse to give up. Don't quit. Do you see what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 9? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I'm not saying if you are in a difficult marriage, you just need to suck it up 
and suffer in silence. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not going to say if you're in an abusive marriage, if you're in an abusive situation where there is danger to you or your children, then here's what I say to you. Get out. Get help. Don't stay in that dangerous place. Some of you may have gone through this, and some of you may have been even where you were abandoned by a spouse, and you didn't have any choice in the matter. I understand, and my heart hurts for you. So I'm not saying if you find yourself in one of those things, you just got to suck it up and go on. No. What I'm saying is this. If you, outside of those contexts, find yourself, and you're struggling, don't give up before time to quit. Perseverance can build loyalty and it develops love. You've got to keep fighting for what's worth fighting for. I've noticed that in sports, back to that, that, that when a team is, is really getting, getting blanked by another team and maybe it's even a blowout, oftentimes a coach will call a timeout and he'll call a timeout and he'll get the team around him and he'll encourage them and he'll challenge them and say, hey, we can't stop. We've got to keep playing until the final buzzer. Keep going. That's what I'm saying to you this morning. I want to encourage you to keep playing. Maybe that means you need to get, if you find yourself in that situation, maybe that means you need to get some help. Maybe come to one of your pastors. Go to a Christian counselor. Don't give up. I've found in my experience over the years that unfortunately, many times couples will come to a pastor as kind of a last resort. I have tried everything else. Let's go talk to the pastor. (laughs) And unfortunately, that ought to have been their first go-to. Because see, what we're talked about, the oneness in marriage, you remember? Oneness in marriage is based in what? It begins and ends with God. So don't be that guy. Don't be that couple. There was a study done by team leading a uh, team of leading family scholars headed by the University of Chicago sociologist, sociologist Linda Waite. And here's what they discovered. Two-thirds of unhappy married couples that stayed married reported that their marriage was happy five years later. Additionally, the most unhappy marriages reported dramatic turnarounds. Among those who were rated who rated their marriage very unhappy. Almost eight out of ten avoided divorce, who avoided divorce, were happily married five years later. Hang in there, don't give up. It's worth it. It's worth it. Get the help. Let others help you. Well, some of us have been sitting here this morning and listening to that and you're going to go, Mike, man, those, those are those tough. I don't know if I can do all of those things. And there's a lot of things that, that showed up on, as you were talking that, that God brought up into my mind. I need to change. There's some bad habits I need to get out of my life. There's some positive ones I need to put in. And I don't know if I can do that. Well, newsflash, you can't. <laughs> you can't do it. It's like earlier. Like I said earlier, marriage, really any relationship begins and ends with God. And the reason we can't do it ourselves is we have a common struggle that we all share. And that's our sin nature. And our sin nature keeps us from wanting what God wants and wants what we want. 
And by the way, when you get married, your sin nature doesn't disappear. (laughs) Our relationship quotient, like every other part of us, must be redeemed. Redemption only happens through the gospel. Jesus loves us enough to go to that cruel cross and die our death, be buried and rise again so that through him we can be redeemed and made new. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have access to resurrection power that brings life to death so we can become the person God birthed us to be. We can have a pliable heart, and that pliable heart begins by placing our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for these men and women These boys and girls that are here today, I thank you for their desire is to know you, to love you, to follow you. I thank you their desire is to grow in their relationship with you and in their relationship with others, whether that's in the context of marriage or others. And I pray that the things that we have studied, the things we've shared this morning, would be helpful for them in that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Mike. We're not going to let you off the hook just yet. I'm going to invite my wife to come up with me. Yeah. She writes all my sermons anyway, so she's better at it. She'll have all the answers. All right. This is my beautiful wife, Carol Ann. Say hello to her, please. One quick thing I can't say. After 40, almost 44 years of pastoral ministry, I've never been able to do a single part of it without her at my side. Yeah. Hey, Carol Ann. Um, yeah, let me ask a couple of these questions that have, have come in. And so, I'm sorry I didn't say this beforehand, but you guys definitely lit my phone up anyway. Um, so, uh, a couple of questions that have, that have come in. I'm, I'm going to rephrase this, and then whoever wants to take it can take it. Um, if, if I'm getting run over physically and emotionally... How long do I stay in covenant? Great question. And how do I protect myself practically? Caroline, you want to handle that one? <laughs> well, I think, I think, and we shared, kind of, kind of mentioned that there at the, the end. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you are in a situation where there is danger to you, whether that would be physical, emotional uh, danger, uh, my first uh, first uh, response would be, let's get you out of that environment. Let's get you help. Let's get you in a place that you can be safe. The second thing I would say then is that then let's begin to try to take steps to help you get healthy, you be healthier, so that you can move forward in regards to this marriage in whatever way that may be. Uh, obviously, you can't do any, as a person that may find themselves, you can't change the other person. You can't do anything with the other person. You can only do for you. But if we understand the concept of covenant marriage, and that's what we've entered into, then I think we have to seek to be committed to that covenant marriage until we don't have any other option there. And, and Carolyn, you may want to. By the way, if you don't know, my wife is, <clears throat> uh, after uh, we, we've been married for... Uh, through the series, she never got to finish her undergraduate degree because uh, we got to have babies and in seminary and all of that. And 
And over the last uh, 10 years, she was able to go back to school, get her undergrad, then get her master's degrees, and she is a family therapist. So uh, I'm really grateful and proud of her for well, that. Well, how do I sign up for that? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the question was, how do I sign up for that? <laughs> um, well, I just want to agree with Mike that one of the things that uh, I feel like is very important is for each of us to be the most emotionally, mentally healthy person that we can be. A lot of times, you know, we focus so much on him. You know, that drives me crazy. Why does he do that? You know, why can't he be more like me? Because um, i am got it together. Um, but I actually heard a therapist here. We were having a parenting seminar, and that's what she told the mother. She said... The best thing you can do for your child is to be the best you you can be. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Be the best you you can be. Learn about yourself. I feel like it's very important to know um, your own your personality. What's your personality type? Mike and I are like, you know, opposite end of the spectrum on if you take a personality test or there's something out now, the Enneagram. Um you learn about who you are, and it tells you your strengths and your weaknesses. And so, you know, a lot of times I get so mad at him, but it's because he's not like me. Well, God didn't make him like me. God didn't make me like me? him. <laughs> and, so, and let me tell you one thing. He told that about leaving the cabinet doors and doors and drawers open. He used that as an illustration of a sermon one time. So, you know, he was always getting home later than us. So when we got home, I said, okay. Let's open every cabinet door <laughs> oh, in the kitchen, every drawer. And he came in, and he didn't even notice it. Like, we opened every one. And um, so it didn't bother you. Or God just graced you that. Still <laughs> bothered me. But, yeah, yeah. but that's, And I know sometimes it's hard. Like, sometimes when there's conflict, one spouse is willing to get counseling. The other isn't. But... You be the best you, best person you can be. Work on yourself and then get godly counsel. You know, there's wisdom and abundance of counselors, and not too many, but get spiritual help and make sure that you're getting counsel from somebody who is godly, not just someone who will, you know, be on your side and light your fire and say, yeah, get out, you know, get out of there, get rid of him or whatever. That's, yeah, so that actually answers another question that came in a couple of times was my marriage wasn't built on God and my spouse doesn't care. What do I do? So that, that's really good. You, you covered that one as well. Let me ask, because this was asked multiple times as well, um, and I'm going to combine y'all's questions, so just track with me. Um, if I'm divorced and remarried, does God still see me as married, I'm assuming covenant, with my ex? And what does that relationship look like now? If I'm divorced, remarried, how can my new marriage be blessed by God is basically the question. Yeah. Great well, questions, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And Troy will be glad to cover that for you next Sunday. <laughs> and Glenn. <laughs> or Glenn. Glenn, yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll bring that over to next Sunday. Now, now, that is a really good question. And I know it's a heartfelt question. And I know it's a difficult thing because divorce does occur and remarriage occurs. And, and, and without going into a lot of deep explanation, um, you know, I think some of that is going to play into what led up to the divorce, the reasons for the divorce, and so forth. 
and were there biblical basis for that or not? And, 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 and I don't want to go into all of that. I will say this, if I can just sum it up right now. If you do find yourself in that place, there's two things I think you need to know. One is that God still loves you more than you'll ever know. Mm. He loves you more than you ever know. And number two, that if you find yourself in that and you say, you know, maybe, maybe my, my first marriage, I, we didn't end it the right way. It wasn't done that. Repentance always brings God's forgiveness and his restoration. And so what I would say to you, if you find yourself in this marriage now and you're wondering about, you know, where, you know what the marriage God wants to bless you in right now? It's the one you're in. The one you're in. And so you seek to, to be, to have that covenant marriage that we just spoke of. And as far as your relationship with your ex, I, I think you have to love them in the way that you would, as God says, that we have love one for another. I'm not saying you love them maybe as your spouse. I'm saying you still have a love for them. And I'm not sure of the dynamics that involve. Sometimes those dynamics doesn't allow you to have contact with them. Or maybe it's not healthy to have contact. I'm not getting into all of that. But I do think those are two things I think are important for us to understand. Yeah. So yes or no. God can bless my now my marriage I'm in now. Exactly. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think this will be a good one to wrap up with. And it's, it's and again, I'm sorry we can't answer all of them. I know time is a thing. And um, but these guys again, they retired. So uh, fill up their time. You know, they'd love to meet with you. Take you out for dinner. No. Um, no I think this is a great question, and it sounds simple at first, but I think it's a neat question. Talking about the triangle. Um, so in the triangle relationship, <clears throat> do we all love one another equally or are we loving God first or am I loving the spouse the same? I think that's a great question. It is a good it's question. It's a fun question. Really, really good question. So in the triangle illustration, who's loving who first and how and, and yeah. how? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say God... God first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then your neighbor or spouse as yourself. So, God first. Yeah, and I think one of the things, too, in that that triangle, God initiates love. God has loved us. God is the one who reaches it. He, He loves me and you first. In fact, we can't love God of our own. It's because God has chosen to love us, and he has initiated love. So as we respond to his love in our life, as we respond to the love that he has for us, and we begin to understand that more and grow in the depth of his love for me and you, kind of like the verse we read earlier over my grandchildren, as we grow in his love, then we're also going to learn how to love others better. So, so yeah, like Caroline said, it's, it first starts with God, but you got to understand God initiated it. We don't initiate it. And as we respond to his love and as we grow in our love with him and, and, and put into places those things that help us do that, like our studying our Bible, prayer, having a place like Safe Haven to gather and worship and interact. As you grow in your love with God, you can't help but love other people. In fact, if, you're not, if you say, I love God and you don't love other people, that's an oxymoron. That doesn't work. That, that's, that's, that's antithesis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mike, Carol Ann, thank you guys so much. Yeah.
And I think um, if, if that was your question, which again was asked a couple of times, I, I think I get where you're coming from. And the heart behind a lot of that is it feels like you are loving God primarily and you are a one-way love because your spouse is not then reciprocating that love. And you feel like you're warped wheel. You're the one doing it, and then they're not. Um, well, I think I would say this as an encouragement. Praise the Lord that isn't that how Jesus loves us, a one-way love. That while we're yet adulterous to Him, He yet still continues to relentlessly love us. It's grace, man. It's all grace. Hey, it's safe haven. And it's biblical. It's all grace. It's all grace. Um, let's pray together and let's continue to worship. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thanks for a chance to just contemplate what it looks like to hold fast, to focus on what matters, to be willing to forgive, to focus on the needs of the spouse, to ask questions and listen, to refuse to give up, to basically to just live out the grace we've been given. Thank you for all of those things. Thank you that we got to contemplate oneness today. And so, for the individuals in this room who are longing for oneness, Lord, would you be gracious and give them that? Give them a partner that they can truly be one with and reflect that triangular, triune, covenantal love. Give them that. Lord Jesus, for the one who has been broken and doesn't know if that can ever exist again, would, number one, you be the source that loves them that way? Hug them right now in a way that they haven't experienced in a long time. Love them, Jesus. Wrap your arms around them and give them that one-way love. Show them that you're sufficient in and of yourself. Restore, restore their belief, Lord, that you can indeed take broken things and make them new. Start with their hearts. And then for the relationships in here, um, who are who are striving to do this, but yet two sinners living together. Uh, Jesus, I pray as we walk out of here that we'll love one another well and that we'll fight to love one another in the way that you loved us.